Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And so for me coming home, um, this was the crisis. The, the gun violence was the crisis facing the city. And the city's has given me every opportunity, you know, educationally, athletically, socially, culturally. So for me to come home and not try and really tackle this issue of violence and just give kids on the south and west sides their childhoods back, um, I couldn't have I couldn't have lived with myself. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. And with us today is former U.S. Education Secretary and Chicago Public School CEO before that, Arnie Duncan. Arnie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. I I take it you're not playing a whole lot of basketball anymore, uh, at least during the pandemic. You are a former uh, professional basketball player in Australia, former captain of the Harvard basketball team. Are you still playing? Uh, I'm not playing. I miss it. I'm running every morning. I hate running. I want to get a ball back in my hand. So hopefully one of these days I'll be able to get back in the gym. You are now serving as managing partner of the Emerson Collective. That is the venture fund founded by the widow of billionaire Steve Jobs. You're also founder of Chicago Cred, Create Real Economic Destiny. Both really aim to do kind of the same thing, don't they, to create opportunity and hope for half of the young black men who study show are disconnected from work and school, right? Yeah, and this work is really, really personal, Fran. I started to lose friends to gun violence um, when I was a teen here in Chicago. And when when you're a young kid like that, I think it shapes you and frankly scars you in ways that are pretty difficult to talk about. And um, during my time in Chicago public schools, lots of things I'm proud of, lots of things I'd be happy to talk to you about all day long. But um, during my watch, on, on my time, uh, seven and a half years, leading, leading the public schools, on average, we had a student killed every two weeks due to gun violence. It was just a devastating, devastating loss of life. And thank goodness, never in a school, but on the bus going home, walking to the corner store, you know, in a living room uh living room shot by an ak-47 from 100 yards away on a wednesday morning you know on a school day and i don't think i know we as we as adults as leaders fail to keep our kids safe and to, to show how uh naive i am when our family left to go to dc in 2009 i thought as a city we were at rock bottom um and unfortunately in the seven years we were gone things got worse for for a lot of reasons and so for me coming home um this was the crisis the, the gun violence was the crisis facing the city and the city's has given me every opportunity you know educationally athletically socially culturally so for me to come home 
and not try and really tackle this issue of violence and just give kids on the south and west sides their childhoods back. Um, I couldn't have I couldn't have lived with myself. So here it is surging yet again to levels that we have not seen in this city since 2016, maybe even we'll top that. Innocent young children, young as 20 months old, getting caught in the crossfire every single weekend. It is absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, Chicago has become the killing fields. What is going on and how do we stop it? Well, we started this work with young men on the south and west sides in 2016. And in 2017, 2018, 2019, we saw double digit reductions in both shootings and homicides uh, every single year. And we have a long, long way to go. We, we try and do a number of things. We have amazing street outreach teams that work with, work with guys. They bring them into our programming. Um, we then do a number of things. We have a phenomenal clinical team that helps young men work through their trauma. Um, we, we have an education uh, team. We've had over 100 guys get high school diplomas. We have a set of guys starting to starting college this fall, which is really exciting. We, we do jobs, uh, work, hard and soft skills, and we have employers hiring to back in. So we, uh, as a city, we're making some real progress. We work with amazing nonprofit partners uh, across the city. Um, we're seeing real progress, but this year, Fran, as you know, has been tough the entire year. This was pre-pandemic. January was a bad month. February was a bad month. March was a bad month. Um, and it's continued. We've continued to struggle. Uh, the 20-month-old you talked about, uh, Sincere Gaston, that was actually the son of one of the young men in our program, Thomas Gaston. And uh, post George Floyd's murder, Minneapolis has been, without doubt, the hardest period of our of our work. And um, we've never lost. We have lost young men we work with. Um, we have never lost a baby before. And just, just being present with a family through this has been one of the most challenging times uh, of my life. I, I, I can't say it any, any differently than that. Um, dad, dad was typical of many, is typical of many young men that work with, had, you know, had a lot of challenges, but has really been working hard to, to get, his, uh, get his life together. He's actually been doing a really good job uh, with us. Um, having his son really helped to, to uh, you know, get him get him more straight and narrow. He's actually been an amazing father, and the part that's so heartbreaking is he, his, he brought his son to our program all the time. And, uh, you know, people saw him grow up, saw him, you know, start to, you know, start to walk. And it's just uh, seeing him in a casket a couple of days ago. Um, never seen a casket that small, Fran, and I hope I never see one again. Um, for, for all the challenges of the city, and it's a really, really difficult time. I just want to, and, and we don't begin to have all the answers by any stretch, Fran. We're just a small part of small part of the solution. But uh, city, we're up 38% uh, on violence uh, year to date. But the community where we have worked the longest and where the deepest, uh, out south, uh, you know, Rose and Pullman, um, that's actually down 38%. And the contrast between those two numbers is really, really interesting. In the 4th of July weekend, it was so tough across the city. Um, we only saw uh, one shooting in, in, in that community. And so um, it actually, in a really, really you know, dark, difficult, challenging time, I'm actually hopeful. And I look at what our team, our outreach team did that weekend. Um, 
I was out, spent some time with them and to see how hard they're working. We had teams out till 2, 2 a.m. Um, there are guys where we were worried about conflicts where we got them out of town and just, you know, just let, let people cool off and get a little bit of a break. See, um, the police, you know, we're, we're a good partner, uh, you know, working in different communities. Um, we have not just um, outreach workers, we have uh, other folks who work in what we call hot spots, specific areas that are known to have significant violence historically. And so just seeing that that type of intensive strategic work, um, putting in place non-aggression agreements between groups that are in conflict, um, I actually think, Fran, Fran that we, we know what can happen when you're willing to be that intentional and that strategic and that grounded in the reality of communities. So what do you see happening? I mean, we're seeing similar spikes in other cities like New York and Atlanta and even a little bit in L.A. What is it that's going on uh, post-pandemic and post-George Floyd? Is it the police laying back? What is going on that's causing this? You know, it's so complex, as you know, and there's no one answer. And every every city, you know, um, has a different story. And I, I don't, you know, pretend to be an expert in any of this stuff. But I, I do think in many ways it's a perfect storm. You know, people who have been, you know, cooped up uh, with, with COVID, you know, now coming out of, the, out of their homes. Um, I do think, you know, police are, not all police, but some police are more, you know, more, uh, you know, stepping back a little bit, a little bit more conservative, um, tr- you know, tremendous anger and outrage coming out of George Floyd's uh, murder. But those are all for me, short term stuff. And at the end of the day, we have to build healthy communities. We can't police our way out of this. We can't arrest our way out of this. Unfortunately, every gun the police pick up, guns just keep flooding our city. And I just keep saying we have to create hope and opportunity. We have to keep working with these young men. We have to help them heal from a lifetime of trauma. Um, the police have a role to play, but and they're they're saying you know if they solved more murders, that would be extraordinarily helpful. So much of this violence is driven by retaliation because there's no there's no justice in traditional systems. So then you have street justice. But we have to be willing to work with these men. We have to be willing to build healthy communities that haven't existed you know forever. Um, you know, since, you know, Martin Luther King came here uh, in the 60s or before. So we have to uh, deal with a crisis, but we have to plan for the long haul. And I don't think we've been intentional enough or strategic enough um, about doing that. So explain for us, how does your organization work? What do you do? Is it just person by person? Tell us what you do for them. Well, uh, I mean, uh, it, it's what we do together. And I always say, these are, these are young men. These are not, these are not, you know, little kids and we are co-creating with them. We are learning from them. We're walking with them, um, checking all the time what's, what's working and what's not. So, uh, the, the initial contact of us is through street outreach teams. And these are guys who have, uh, tremendous, uh, credibility with the different groups, with the different cliques. And, um, they're able to, to talk to young men and, and ask them to, to give us a chance. And, you know, these guys have been been lied to so many times and have, have had so many things, you know, so many people, so many programs give up on them. Um, they can be justifiably very, you know, cynical and skeptical. But once they come into us, we try and surround them um, with just a team of adults who, who are just totally focused on their long-term success. So we have amazing life coaches, uh, many of whom, not all, many of whom, frankly, serve significant time in prison. 
and have come out and dedicated their lives to, to giving back to the community, um, trying to right their wrongs. And we always say experience can be the best teacher, but it doesn't have to be your experience. It can be somebody else's experience. And you'll learn from them and don't, you know, do some things differently. So the life coaches are huge. As I said, we have an amazing clinical team in our have generally and every every every, every man's story is, is different we actually work with some young young women as well now but but many have dealt with trauma their entire lives it's not like they had great lives and then at 16 or 17 something went wrong they've dealt with trauma their entire you know from from birth and we have to help people heal at least we say you know hurt people hurt people and that that healing that journey's you know uh, transformative but but can take some time. Um, the education component is really important to see, see young men who you know, never thought they would graduate from high school, some of whom actually left, left school before they even made it to high school, to see them getting those high school diplomas and seeing some now going to college has been extraordinary. And then I always say they're going to make money. These are, they're going to pay rent. They're going to eat. They're going to take care of their kids. And they're going to do that in the legal economy or in the illegal economy. And that's up to us, Fran, as a city. And uh, we, we work and help to get them you know, ready for jobs. We have people working in healthcare and manufacturing and hospitality and culinary and construction. We have a couple guys working in law firms downtown, which is amazing. We have one guy working at Deloitte. And we just need employers to, to decide that they're going to be part of the solution that if they're not willing to hire, um, if they lock people out of the economy, uh, the legal economy, they force them to go back to the um, illegal economy. So this is multifaceted. There's no one simple answer. We're making mistakes every single day and learning hard lessons and trying to get better. But we as a city have to commit to solving this problem. And that's everyone. That's the faith-based community. That's nonprofits, social service agencies. But the business community has to step and put higher. And we, we have to rebuild these communities. You look at all these vacant lots in the neighborhoods where we work. What if we were building thousands of homes south and west sides and hiring young men from the community to, to work on those projects and you know, literally helping to rebuild rather than tear down the neighborhoods? Um, that's the kind of investment we need to make if we're serious about um, uh, giving our children their, their, their childhoods back. But this is such labor intensive work. So what's the capacity? How many people can you serve at one time? Uh, it, it, this is all relationship based. I always say programs don't change lives. Relationships do. And so we work with you know fantastic uh, nonprofit partners, faith-based partners on the south and west sides. Um, we're working collectively, probably with about 500 men now. Um, it, we've slowed down the intake during the COVID time. Unfortunately, we need to sort of ramp that back up as we, we slowly try and open safely. Um, but we're not, um, you know, I don't know what the magic number of young men who need this, these kinds of opportunities. And I always say that I think we're giving, in most cases, a first chance, not a second chance. People often say, oh, it's great you're giving people a second chance. I often think that they've never had a real chance before. But it's not, um, I don't, I don't, no one really knows a, a hard number, but let's say it's you know 2,000 men or 3,000 men, whatever it may be. I don't think it's 10,000, Fran. And I think as a city, if we're not willing to make a commitment to giving everybody an opportunity to do something better with their lives, and this is not a get out of jail free card. If they do something, 
you know, um, they should be held accountable. Um, but we're not going to arrest our way out of this. We're not going to incarcerate our way out of this. Um, the police, as we know, are, are, you know, really struggle to solve crimes. And we have to give guys a reason to put down the guns, to have hope. And that's what this is all about. So what is the population of young men that we need to reach to really reduce the violence? Yeah, I, I think, you know, my, my best guess, and it is, it is just a guess, is, you know, somewhere in that, you know, 2,000 to 3,000 range. And we're, we're trying to work really at, the, at, the, at that crisis point, those young men, 70 to 24, who are most at risk of shooting and being shot. Um, many of our men, unfortunately, have, have been shot. Um, uh, many, unfortunately, have shot others. We've had a couple instances where guys in our program have literally shot at each other in the past, and we've seen them reconcile, and that's an extraordinary uh, extraordinary uh, event to, to, to witness. Um, but I just think as a city with all of our, you know, corporate and philanthropic you know, resources, if, we, if we're unwilling to commit to helping a couple thousand men you know, have a chance at life, then shame on us. Then we're just not, you know, we're, we're talking about the problem. We're admiring the problem and, and not trying to solve it. And we all have a role to play here. Again, if, we, if employers aren't willing to, to hire and our guys have, um, you know, many have uh, uh, criminal backgrounds and some, you know, uh, violent uh, backgrounds. Um, but those are things they did when they were younger. And there are young men who I would, you know, trust to take care of my kids. And it, it's just, if we judge everybody about the worst thing they did in their life, I'll speak for myself, I wouldn't have had the opportunities that, that I've had. And you can't just look at what people did, you know, at a, at, at their lowest moment. You got to look at how committed they are to transformation. And we see how hard these guys are working to be positive community leaders, to be the fathers for their children that they never had, um, to reduce the violence, to keep their community safer, to see them putting in, in place peace treaties and non-aggression agreements with guys where there's been way too much bloodshed on both sides to see them having the courage to do that. Um, this is some of the most heartbreaking and toughest work I've ever done, Fran, but it's honestly easily the most inspiring um, and, and, uh, and hopeful work that I've done. And these guys are leaders and we just have to, again, walk with them, learn from them, and they will lead us. They're not a problem. They're the solution. They're going to lead us to a safer city if we walk with them. In New York, the mayor's office to prevent gun violence has $38 million budget. Uh, the Los Angeles mayor's office of gang reduction and youth development has $36 million. In Chicago, a new investment of $11 million. And that's up from just $2.5 million the year before. Is Mayor Lightfoot doing enough? If not, what more does she need to do? Well, I think there are lots of structural challenges here. I don't any of us are doing enough. And so um, we, we all have to do more. We all have to think differently. We all have to, we all have to, uh, you know, challenge, challenge conventional thinking. And I, I can't think of a, a more important investment, not just for the city to make, uh, but, but for the, again, the corporate and the philanthropic community to make. So we all have to come to the table. So um, yes, relative to other cities, um, I, I don't think we're, we're investing enough uh, or close to enough. Uh, in violence prevention, again, we can't do this all after the fact. If you look, you know, we are uh, we are six to seven times more violent than New York 
we are two to three times more violent than LA, and yet we have way more police officers. Uh, we have twice as many police officers per capita than, than um, LA. Um, something I'm obsessed with is, is the clear rate. That's the percent of crimes that get solved. Um, our clear rates for homicides are, uh, are disastrous. And frankly, that's, that's one of the largest, if not the largest driver of violence here in Chicago, as I mentioned earlier, is this constant retaliation. If you guys talk about getting, getting our lick back because nothing, you know, almost nothing gets solved. And so we all have to invest more, try new things, be willing to fail, but just doing more of the same isn't going to get us where we need to go. Right, but people don't trust the police to protect them and they don't trust the police to share the information with them. Do we need to do something like a witness protection program? What do we need to do to build that trust so that people do share information? Yeah, these are really thoughtful questions. And um, I always want to be very careful. We work with extraordinary individual police officers. And one of the most important peace agreements that, that were, was put in place, actually in the community I was talking about earlier in, in Roseland, um, where there had been, a, uh, you know, unfortunately, a tremendous amount of bloodshed on both sides of the conflict, way too many bodies. When one of the leaders of the cliques decided to, uh, like, he, was, he just got tired of it. it was, enough was enough. Um, it's actually fascinating. What he did is he went and actually knocked on the door of a police officer who lives in the community, uh, Detective Vivian Williams, and basically asked her, would she assist in this? Um, because there was so much trust there. And because she's not a police, you know, police officer coming in from another place, she literally, she lives on the block. She lives right there. He literally walked, went over to her house and knocked on her door. And so there are amazing individual police who have great relationships, but to your point, Fran, Fran structurally, police with the community is broken. And we haven't been willing to acknowledge that. We haven't been willing to confront that. We haven't been willing to, you know, sort of start start over and, and try and rebuild that. Unless we're willing to acknowledge where things aren't working, um, it's hard to get better. So how do we do it? How do we repair it? Uh, you have to get out of the cars. You have to walk on blocks. You have to meet people before the, the, the moment of crisis. Um, you have to build real relationships. Um, you have to make yourself vulnerable. You have to apologize when, when things are, are tough. So this is, these are human relationships. And um, if it feels like an invading force, um, if it feels like, um, I'll just give you a very concrete example where, uh, uh, unfortunately, Thomas' son, uh, Sincere, was killed last Saturday. The next day, Sunday, um, he and his wife are, are brought into the police. So the day after, they just lost their 20-month-old who was sitting in the back seat of his mother's car on the way to laundromat to get, get clean clothes because he's, he was supposed to start daycare. Uh, last Monday, um, they go, they are called in the police station and basically re-traumatized by the police the day after their child has been killed. And those kinds of things, um, there has to be a better way. There has to be a better way. So he's due an apology then. I, I, I think we just all have to try to see our common humanity. And we've done things, Fran, where we bring together our young men with the police. And, it, and it's fascinating. And the conversations can be very, very raw and very intense. 
but at the end of the day, it's, it's like group therapy. And it's, it's, it's so interesting that everyone's looking for the same thing. Um, our guys on the street and the police, they are looking not to be, to, to not be stereotyped. Um, they're looking to be treated as individuals. Um, they want to be respected for who they are. And that's the kind of relationship building that, that we have to be willing to do. This has to be, you know, house by house, block by block. But the only time, you know, you get out of the cars when there's a the crisis and where there are no relationships, when everyone is assumed to be a, you know, a gang member. Um, we had a, a young man who was one of uh, one of our leaders in this peace movement, a high school student who was actually volunteering and teaching peace uh, in the community, and actually was just so brilliant, gave me the idea to start our start our peacemaker program, which is working with young young kids, um, uh, young kids uh, across the city to, to learn conflict resolution skills. Tragically, he was shot on his porch sitting with his grandfather. And when he was taken to the hospital, he was handcuffed to the bed because he was just assumed because he's a young black man from the West side that somehow he was a gangbanger. It's just, you know, that's the kind of thing. It's just unconscionable, but that's, that's real. That's reality. And we have to be willing to confront those hard truths. The death of George Floyd has f- given fuel to a nationwide movement to defund the police, to yank them out of public schools, to spend the money on social workers and restorative justice and other social services. The mayor has so far resisted that. Um, do you? How do you feel as a CPS former CEO? Should police officers be in public schools? Well, I, I think it, it's a broader question of sort of how do we reimagine or reinvent what police do. And I'll, I'll just give you one school example, but then one, one broader example. So when I, when I was leading CPS, we had a school on the west side, uh, North Lawndale College Prep, obviously North Lawndale, one of our uh, most violent communities, where we gave them every year nine security officers. And that's what we just did. And I, I'll never forget the principal called me and said, Arnie, what if instead of giving me nine security officers, you gave me nine social workers? And I had never thought of something like that. And he took a real risk in doing that. Um, I took a real risk in saying yes, but they saw a, a tremendous drop in violence. And they used one of those social workers to be a bridge for students once after they graduated to help them in that transition to college. And so, you know, that may not be the right solution everywhere. But in that case, there was a tremendous drop in violence, and it was all about building a healthy community, healthy relationships, trust, helping having those social workers be there to help kids with their trauma. And so, I think we have to be willing to to, to think differently. And so, that's that's you know one example of one school's choice and and what happened. More with the police, I think you know every police will say they're called to way too, way too many calls where um, it's not about, you know, violence and, and, you know, should they, should they be called in those situations with the George Floyd thing? That's a counterfeit $20 bill. Did you, you know, did you need all those police, you know, coming, coming in that situation? And so I think if we thought about more street outreach workers, more clinicians who can help men heal from their trauma, more social workers, and yes, potentially less police. um, I think that's the direction we have to go. And do you think schools should be given the option to cancel the police officers, but given the money to spend elsewhere? 
Well, I think, you know, Janice Jackson, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of hers, and she's really thinking this thing through very carefully. But I think this is about the part of the reason that I said yes in that situation is I had so much confidence um, in the judgment of that principal who knew his community far better than I ever could. And so I do think really helping, um, you know, principals uh, and school leaders think through their community needs, um, what would best help, because um, you can't compromise on having a, a, a safe climate, a safe environment in school, but there are many different ways to do that. And I think really empowering those principals to think through what's the best way to have a, a calm and peaceful and respectful and safe community so that my students can concentrate on algebra and biology and advanced trigonometry and calculus. Um, there are many ways to try and do that. And I think it's so important that, that we listen to those, you know, listen to those principles and think that through together. Can Chicago Public Schools safely reopen this fall to in-classroom learning? And if so, what will it take? Well, I've, you know, what's been just so devastating, it has been the lack of leadership by, by Trump and by uh, the federal government and the, the you know, countless deaths. It's just it's the saddest thing to me. I, I've lost a friend to COVID. So many folks have. I have another friend who's had couple fingers amputated. He's still battling very significant health issues. Um, it's just has been so preventable. It, it just is beyond heartbreaking. It's infuriating. And so we as a country haven't taken the hard steps we need um, to open schools and to, and to make things safe. So, you know, this is the start of July, Fran. And I think what we as a country are willing to do what small sacrifices we're willing to make so that our children can safely return to school this fall, that's up to us. That school systems can't do this by themselves. They don't, they're not, you know, they don't live in a bubble. And we have to be willing to make, you know, again, tiny sacrifices, wear a mask, you know, don't hang out at the beaches, don't go to bars, don't, you know, don't go eat indoors at restaurants. And so we have to sacrifice. If we, you know, everyone says we care about kids, but we just simply have not done what we need to do. Um, the, 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 the malevolent leadership from D.C. has been catastrophic, but we have great local leadership working hard on this. The, the mayor, the governor, Janice Jackson, I think, is doing an extraordinary job here. But we have to give them a chance. And all of us as citizens, we have to understand our common humanity. And if we're not willing to do the right things, um, then our children are going to struggle. I desperately wanted to have a, a, a massive like, uh, summer school have kids come back summer to make up for the time they lost during, during uh, COVID. But we, that, that opportunity has come and gone um, because we as a nation haven't done what other nations have done. And it's just the saddest, saddest thing to me. So what about CPS? Will it be able to and how? And what about college it's, it's, campuses? It, I, yeah, it, it's, sorry, it's, it's, it's too early to tell. And I, you know, everybody wants to go back. There's a real need to go back. But that can only be done if it's safe, if, we, if, uh, if they can do it safely. So what we do in July will determine what happens in August and September. And so this month, we have to walk the walk. And we have to do the things that will give our, ch our children a chance. So um, whether it's you know, K to 12 or, or higher ed, um, everybody is trying to figure this out every single day. And unfortunately, across the nation, things are things urgent. And so we have to stop that. We have to test. We have to contact trace. We have to isolate. We have to do the things that we know slow the spread of this pandemic.
And the colleges are, are desperate to hold on to these students. They know the parents are not going to pay for this enormous tuition if they're not getting in-person learning. And yet, is that going to be safe? Again, every, everyone's working through that. And there's no one, you know, people have plan A, plan B, plan C. And our willingness as a country to do the right thing for our nation's young people, that will determine whether it's K-12 or higher ed, how much they're able to do in person. Arnie Duncan, thank you so much. And best of luck to you and your hero's work in the community. We hope you succeed. Thanks. Long way to go. Take care now. All right. We'll see you all next week.